Welcome to the Cusp Show, a very special edition as we come here from Radio Row at Super Bowl 54 in Miami. Joe Favorito, Scott Rosner, engineer. I was going to say, who is who then? Tom Cerny. First guest of the entire Radio Row week for us with us, Chris Nowinski. Chris's background is unbelievable. We've been very fortunate to have him on campus with us, speaking to our students in the past. He leads the Concussion Legacy Foundation, doing unbelievable work. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so good to run you here. I appreciate having you. No, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. You never know who you bump into on, on Radio Row. So I guess the question we want to start with for our listeners who aren't really aware uh, of your background or what Concuss- Concussion Legacy Foundation is, tell us your story. All right, so I'll try to give you the shortest version possible. I was born, um, <laughs> I got into this world because I played football at, uh, at Harvard, you might have heard of it. And, uh, it's okay, we'll, so we'll talk a little more slowly so for many you. Ivy League jokes yeah. here, i got to stop. Um, and then was a pro wrestler. Where was that? <laughs> Howard? Howard. Um, I was a pro wrestler for WWE, like most Harvard grads. And then I uh, got booted and had too much. Got post-concussion syndrome. Didn't understand my concussion, so I was lying about it. I was wrestling and, and you know, through all these weird symptoms. And when I realized I had to stop, I uh, decided to dig into the concussion literature because I wanted to get better faster as I get back to work. And in that process, I realized that how we handle concussions in sports went against everything that (laughs) medicine had been telling us for the last 100 years. And so I never got better, and I decided to take take that information, take one shot at trying to change the culture and say, look, we don't have to all ruin our brains for this. We should be playing through concussions. We should be telling kids what those symptoms are. Uh, we should be appreciating there could be long-term effects. So that led to the book, Head Games Football Concussion Crisis, where I learned about CT. Started getting doing outreach for the brains of athletes when they died without your waters. That started working to realize to show pictures of the damage. Started the foundation, partnered with Boston University and the VA. We've built now this 830 brain brain bank, uh, including nearly 300 NFL players, which is you know, why I'm here. So that's where we've learned the most. But basically, we're now learning, you know, we're, we're better on concussions, but we have this huge CT issue now facing us. What's the biggest misconception that the public has for what's being done or, or how we got to this point? <laughs> there's, Come back uh, in 25 minutes. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's so many, so many misconceptions. Because this is very, very difficult science. It's even confusing top scientists, right? So I think, you know, the one thing we have to appreciate, you know, when I'm here, I'm thinking about CT because the concussion conversation is basically like there's not much else the NFL can do. You're going to have these large men run into each other. You're going to have 250 diagnosed a year. You're going to have 2,000 never acknowledged uh, and never talked about. But the CT issue is where we can make change. We can stop giving everybody this disease. And that means you have to, you have to unlock that connection between concussions and CT. It's not concussions that's causing the CTE. You can get CT without concussions. It's the repetitive hits to the head. No brain was ever designed to take a thousand hard blows to the head. And that's what we have to attack. So when we, we think about where we've evolved in the science piece, take us from where we were when you got involved to where we are now. Um, we know a lot more now than we did before. We do know a lot more. When I when I got involved, CTE um, 
It was 2006 when I called Andre Waters' family. And so at that point, there were 48 cases in the medical literature ever, almost all boxers. And uh, Andre Waters was the third NFL player diagnosed with CTE. So we didn't know, we, we thought it was concussions, and we openly talked about concussions being the cause. Um, and it hadn't been seen yet in ice hockey, hadn't been seen yet in rugby, hadn't been seen yet in soccer, hadn't been seen yet in baseball, all those other sports we put on the map. Hadn't been seen in teenagers. We thought we started finding these young cases. Um, so we, we've now, since then, now we've built up this huge brain bank. We've published 100 studies led by Anne McKee and her tremendous team at the VA at Boston University. And we now are getting closer to diagnosing it. We're understanding genetic risk factors. We're understanding exposure risk factors. So, for example, probably the most important study we've published that people are really struggling to get their arms around because it's so profound is that when we looked at uh, hundreds of uh, football brains, NFL, college, high school, we found that their, their odds of having the disease appeared to increase by 30% per season or per year they played football in their life. And it's something that a uh, dose-response relationship is something everyone's familiar with in, in public health because that's basically the same relationship between smoking and lung cancer, 30% a year. And so if that's true, like, wow, do we have a chance to prevent it? But it means you attack it like you did smoking and lung cancer. You stop letting kids do it. That's the only way to stop this thing. So, and we've had this conversation before offline. The recommended age, then, as the father of a 11-year-old athletic boy, um, like I have, what is the right age? I mean, we see flag becoming more prominent. We see the NFL putting resources behind the flag. Right. But what is the, you know, doctor recommended age, if there is such a thing? <laughs> well, it's sort of like it's sort of like the doctor recommended age for smoking. Like no hit to your head is good for you. Every chance, every season you play opens up this door, right? So what you have to look at this as an adult and say this is this isn't a question science can answer. This is a question that is cultural. This is a question of what are we comfortable with? What are the risks and benefits? It's the same, you have to use the same decision tree you do for when kids drive, right? Like we know they're gonna get more access to 16, they're gonna get slightly fewer at 17, and slightly fewer at 18. When do you do it? Well, it's, it's when do you need them driving so they can get to school, go to work, free up their parents, whatever these decisions, you know? So it's like, so the minimum is, I will say to, you know, to my grave, there's never a reason to hit a kid in the head hundreds of times before they're in high school, before they go through puberty, before they're allowed to get in a weight room. You know, then you're trying to instill these manliness things or whatever. Uh, and then between 14 and 18, we have to have a cultural conversation. You know, it's interesting. You touch upon there's no reason for them to be playing really before before high school at the tackle level, um, tackle version of the sport. And, you know, over the course of teaching for 20-plus years, I've had an opportunity to teach a lot of NFL players through executive education programs and career transition programs, and a few who came back and have been full-time students uh, for us, uh, both at Columbia and at my prior uh, institution at Penn. And it's amazing how many of them didn't begin playing football until they got to high school. They weren't popular kids. They were multi-sport athletes doing a lot of different things. But and flag wasn't really prominent. But they didn't. They played football in the backyard, sandlot stuff, but not organized football until they got to high school. Yeah, it didn't hurt them. No, it definitely helped their brain for going back to doing graduate school after a career banging their head. but we've also shown, I had my team do research at the foundation, uh, best players ever who didn't play till high school. 
it is a who's who of football legends. And we actually realized the top five NFL players all time never played until high school. And that, if that doesn't convince you, you don't even play young to play. Like It's a genetic lottery plus other things. Do you know who's your top five? Do you want to play that game? Sure. I, I would put Jim Brown yep. in there. Lacrosse. Um, I w- What's that? Lacrosse. Lacrosse. Right. He was lacrosse in two sport at Syracuse. Um, and thought of in many ways the best lacrosse player uh, who ever played. He ever put up, picked up a stick next to Tom Cerny. He was a distant number two, um, but but solid. Yeah. Um, no, so I would say him, um, uh, Buckus. If you're playing on the defensive end, he's not considered top five. Uh, LT okay. is LT. one defensive player next group. Okay. Morris Taylor. Yep. Um, Jerry Rice. Yep. Barry Sanders. Walter Payton. Consensus yeah. top. Okay. Walter Payton and our no who's Chicago our who's guy. our quarterback? I mean, that's the that's ultimately that is the that's a, always that'll be an eternal battle. I, we said Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Michigan guy like myself, so we'll 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 go with that. Yeah, um, that, none of those guys played tackle till high school. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. So when we, but obviously that's not what. America wants to hear. No. Um, the NFL for a long time has pushed back against that. Pop Warner has pushed back against that in a major way. Yeah. Um, as well, National Federation of High School Athletic Associations. Surprisingly pushed back yeah. on our 30% paper. So, yeah. you know, which is crazy. Yeah. Or smoking, sorry, smoking. On the smoking, PSA. yeah. I was very surprised by that. So, which by, which, by the way, was a fantastic and powerful PSA. Thank you. Yes. Right? Go, go to YouTube and watch Tackle Can Wait. You want to watch uh, 12-year-olds playing football and smoking cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, really drew a lot of attention to, to the issue. Um, and But I, I think when people think of it in that way as parents, yeah. right, making that decision, it, it kind of resonates a bit more. That was the right? idea. Is that science is very hard to understand, but we wanted to get people to say, if you already think smoking's bad for your kid. Yeah. So, right, we, we have anti-jewel campaigns now and everything else, but, but not necessarily anti-football. So it's it, there's an irony to you being in this room right now, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, because in a way, you are the face of the greatest existential threat to the national football going forward. So as you see all of this go on, and you and you make the rounds and you do your educational piece what is the end game here so the way we look at what you know what's a reasonable result for something like this it's a can we prevent it right and, and the reality is yes this is entirely preventable if your risk of ct doubles every two and a half seasons Let's keep talking about that, and if we can actually get the NFL and the players to back this idea, right, that we need to go back to the way it was before the 1960s, which was that very few kids played tackle before that, right? And it was an experiment that failed, right? So we're doing a ton of awareness raising towards prevention, keeping this topic of player safety and health uh, top of mind. And then we're also just trying to, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff I do in this room is really building relationships with players. Because one of the strangest things, if you think about this, is we've already proven that one in ten NFL players have this. And, and we're about to publish that that number is probably dramatically higher. We have zero active NFL players helping us try to figure out how to cure this thing. <laughs> zero. There's a cognitive dissonance there, yes. for sure. Uh, and some of the retired players, though, have been fabulous. You know, they're, they're, they're not as powerful when they're retired. But, and, of course, if they're on TV, they're not going to help us. So it's interesting. i got to find those guys who could really help move the needle in the public. 
How much are the families involved? Because a lot of times, especially young people, are motivated by what mothers and fathers say. And then just looking over the, the time that you've been involved, how far has it advanced so far, and how far do you think the, the education process will advance in the next year? Well, so, so in ter- with part of the families being involved. In, ter- in terms of awareness. Yeah. You know, the ki- obviously, the parents will help make the decisions for the kids. Yeah, yeah. But are the parents aware enough to say, oh, you know, it's, it's, this is when we should start them? No. Well, so so what, uh, there's actually a, pub- a couple of publications last few months showing that um, your, your parents' income and their education levels will determine whether you're going to go, right? And so that I think, I think uh, Aspen Institute publication the other day said your parents made less than $50,000. 16% of those kids played tackle. Parents made 100 or more. It was 10%. And that was like the biggest swing of any, uh, you know, outside like tennis, which is sort of obvious. So that's so I think we need to do more educating parents, especially educating parents who are harder to reach. And then how far we'll go next year really comes down to how much we can really get people to pay attention because the media's been our friend, right? Like you know, New York Times and some other outlets have done a great job getting the message out. We don't have a big budget to pay for these eyeballs in the years, but... Um, but there's a pushback, you know, and the NFL controls the media more than anybody, so it's hard. So I, I want to go back to what you just talked about with the uh, socioeconomic divide. Ten uh, percent uh, uh, participation rate with uh, parents over a hundred thousand uh, in income, family income, um, and sixteen percent uh, under fifty. Is there also a geographic shift, right? Because we see, you know, we, we, we're based in New York City, obviously, and you're in Boston, right? Um, and so, you know, we've got that kind of East Coast major market kind of almost left-leaning bias, and, and there's been played that way in a yeah. lot of ways, right? So it's almost like on the coast, the data that I've seen at least says participation is is dropping, right? Yeah. Um, specifically above, you know, above certainly upper middle and middle class, right? What's the rest of the country look like? So uh, yeah, I remember there was a piece a few months back looking at a big red state blue state divide, you know. But all, but a lot of that is driven. I said it was more of an SEC divide. That SEC football is so. Uh, so powerful in terms of being a, being a fan, and also it, I think somebody argued. I thought it was a good argument. The, the idea that it's attainable, like the, like everyone knows, that kids not going to make the NFL, but maybe if I'm in Alabama, they could play for Alabama. You know, and so that you idea. You worship what you see, huh? You worship what you see. Yeah, yeah. And so there's that idea that that um, the southern states where football is college football is king. Those are the states that are gaining rather than losing, and it might be because. You know, they are the, you know, the best marketing thing on TV. If I'm a t- teenage boy, I, you know, that's what everyone loves. Yeah. Uh, so, interesting. I mean, and by the way, you know, we're, again, Scott Rosner, uh, Joe Favorito here with Chris Nowinski, uh, who leads the uh, Concussion Legacy Foundation, former WWE wrestler, Harvard football player, but also, you know, it, it didn't stop at Harvard. Right, you went on into graduate work as well, Dr. Nowinski. Oh, thank right, you very so much. tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so when when I started the foundation, and basically the first few years of the foundation was me sitting at Boston University, they gave me an office, and like trying to get this brain donation thing started. 
calling families every day, and they're like, as long as you're here, why don't you get a graduate degree? And I was like, oh, God. Like, I didn't actually feel capable. I was too post-concussed. Headaches every day, but they're like, just, just, they said, suck it up and do it. So I did a part-time degree while I ran the foundation, and I'm a behavioral neuroscientist at Boston University School of Medicine. So it's very exciting. Yeah, it is. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Does it ever go away? Do you still have bad days? Oh, yeah. What, I mean, what are they like? You don't want to tell everyone who has post-concussion syndrome that it, it doesn't uh, always go away because some people it does. Right. But it hasn't gone away from me. What so, are those days like, though? Uh, so, like, like, I went back to Boston. I don't know if the weather, what it is. Like, you're almost, I'm almost like a migraine person now. Two days in a row, it was, like, too bright outside. Mm-hmm. And so I had this, like, I felt like I was being stabbed in the brain. And, like, you know, I learned how to work, but I was, like, you know... I literally was going to Starbucks and getting nitro coffees, you know, like yeah. trying to drug myself through the day, which I never do. So I can't, I can't, you know, I get these terrible headache days a few days a month. I get, I don't sleep normally. I get up 10 times a night, um, which is not healthy. Um, I take a drug every day to, for migraine prevention that also is a slight stimulant. So I'm actually like a different personality when I'm on the drug. And I, I've tried to get off it a few times. I just can't. I can't take the headaches. So, you know, I'm like a different guy permanently. And, and how's, you obviously still exercise. You're, you know, oh, you're, you're, you. fair, you're fairly fit. I, right? That's the other thing is I can't get my heart rate over like 145 without getting nauseous. Yeah, so that's, that's my question. Yeah. Is what is the impact on you from a, from a physical fitness? Yeah, so I don't, I, like I, I'm down to like swimming and tennis. <laughs> My, my, my wife made me retire from basketball after I got two concussions in a year that gave me a headache that for a year, like five years ago. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty... She's that's like, pretty yeah, I'm not going to marry you with a, with, if you're post-concussed all the time. So now she'll, she'll accept these few days a month, but like, yeah, I mean, I feel bad. I mean, today I've been, you know, actually talking to two dads whose kids are going through this right now in their early 20s who are like scared to death about those kids making permanent decisions. Yeah for a temporary problem and I've gotten the phone telling him like you're going to get better trust me but it sucks no listen I mean we, I, we've we shared this offline I mean I had you know as a soccer player who knows how many times right um, you know especially before the ball technology changed yeah. hitting the ball and you hit it the wrong way heavy wet leather ball but I also had a diagnosed concussion as a footy um, right. in the game and, and that was kind of you know a moment that you know you don't want to go through again and has still has impact on me as well. Not exercise, uh, not that I'm actually not, but not, uh, no, right. not, not exercise or anything like that. But driving, things like that, just the right. way that it, you know the visual uh, yeah, impairment. Yeah, Forty, you, you realize is. like your entire career is your brain, right? Like, and no one tells you that when you're a 20 year old throwing your body around. Like, you think like you know you just get through. Yeah. No, I, and that's exactly right. And at 40, I realized, it's like, hey, I, I actually need this for work. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they won't give me money this anymore. Is, no, no, this, this, is actually, this is actually important. And, yeah. and, I, and my, reali- my realization, I don't know if, if Joe knows this story, um, was it happened on a Sunday, right? And I drove down to Philadelphia. Uh, I was still teaching at Penn at the time on a Monday morning. And... I got down there and I, no, I, I gave a, and I was like, I called one of my friends on the way, let's go for a run, like thinking I just was, you know, like digged, right? Like we, like we yeah. always heard. Um, and I gave a lecture and about 15 minutes into the lecture, the students started laughing. Now I'm pretty funny, but it was not at a moment where, you know, there was, it, it should have, laughter was appropriate. And I looked around and I was like, do anything on my face? You know, like, what's, what's going on here? And I said, um, excuse me, guys, what's, what's so funny? And they said, Professor, you gave the same exact lecture 
last Wednesday and said the same exact thing and used the same exact example, and you actually told the same two jokes at the same time. And I thought about it, I was like, well, were they funny the second time? <laughs> right? But that was the moment for me yeah. where I was like, wow, that's really, really funny. Wow, that's scary. Yeah, very scary stuff. I remember, it's funny, when you were growing up, people always told you about, you see stars. And the first time I remember I had a concussion, I couldn't figure out why the ground was rushing up to meet my face because <laughs> I was actually falling the other way and had no concept that I was falling. So, so anyway, Frank not stuff. No, so. well, <coughs> but this those is, are fun stories, though. Yeah, yeah I couldn't figure out the sky went orange. orange. Yeah. I once couldn't figure out why I'd been to the beach earlier and I didn't realize I'd chipped my teeth for like 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. I thought I was chewing on sand. Uh. No, so, so this is, and, and, and you now have you, have, you have one young child, right? Um, and as your family grows, you know, you're, it's funny. Obviously, you're that you're the public face of this. Um, I can't tell you because of the work that you know my circle of, of friends knows that I do. Is their kids come into football playing age, and they ask me, yeah, right. And I know your story, and I obviously you know know you know the, the, uh, uh, not nearly as much as, as most people, but I know more than some. And they asked me, and I've become the de facto expert. Would you let them play? And I mean, my I know my answer, and they don't want to hear it. Yeah. Well, you know, when you start talking about kids, I, I thought you'd take a different direction because I remember after I lectured in your class, I had one of your students came up and said something my dad deals with, um, and it was it was pretty profound. But and and, and we talk my kid, you know, what we worry about, like so next month. We'll bring together, we invite all the families of our brain donors to come meet the doctors and see what their usually father, brother, son's brain has done for advancing science. So we're all going to be in Orlando. And uh, you hear the stories of what it's like to grow up as a child of somebody who has a short temper, is aggressive and sometimes violent, or can't hold down a job, or can't regulate their emotions, or you know they get divorced out of safety, or, or just dad was, they think dad was an a-hole, you know? And uh, the diagnosis is often like giving them back their concept that my dad wasn't a terrible guy. He had a brain disease. But, you know, it's something that everybody needs to be thinking about. And it's the way we got to communicate to these players better. Like, it's not just about you being a tough guy, right? It's about what are you going to be to your kids in 20 years when this thing's set in. Did you think we had this year a, a little bit of a cultural shift. It was almost like the norm shifted a little bit in, in the NFL, specifically with the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Um, where they had a player, Kamir uh, Grugier Hill, who played through a concussion and said he faked it, basically, uh, that he was concussed. Um, and the team came down on him pretty harshly. Doug Peterson, the head coach, said, you know, this is not what we do. Um, that's not the norm of what we expect our athletes. And at the same time, Within their organization, um, Carson Wentz, in the playoff game, winds up being concussed, plays a little bit more, but then it's like, hey, this isn't this isn't right, goes into the tent and, and diagnosed. Um, do you think that could be a tipping point moment? Yeah, we, 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 well, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a good story, but we were saying the same thing about Donald Driver and the Packers seven years ago, and that didn't... This is like the second next time it's happened. Yeah, fair point. You know, like it's, uh, I mean, the reality is, you get a concussion in the NFL, and you can, papers have been published on your economic loss as a player. You know, because you get a reputation or whatever, you have to retire more sooner. So, I don't think the I think people, players are going to hide it as long as they can. 
the only guys will come out are the guys who are so good they know they get their job back in two weeks if they cut, you know get hurt. Um, I, I thought you were going to take this to it was an interesting year with Andrew Luck, Gronk, and Keekly all walking away for thirty. I think that has to do with the fact that they've made their money and they've paid attention. Um, but that's a good thing, right? I mean, the economics have shifted. Choice. And, and the, I like the fact that players are making informed choices. That's right. And and they know what the long-term, right? There's a point where the cost-benefit yeah, exactly. right, analysis sways in the hay. I've gotten all the benefits. Now, and some I, people are actually finally doing a cost-benefit analysis, right? Because you grow up in this game and you just don't play as long as you can. And, not, and, don't, and, and damn the consequences because that's some idealized world. Yeah, but you also made me think, though, with players reporting concussions, I just did, uh, I've done a bunch of trainings now for professional wrestling organizations. Hmm. Started with WWE, but now all the others are, are doing it too. And that's the most important thing I tell them. And it's not as much of an issue in football, but uh, but the idea that if you're in the ring and you have a concussion, you're trying to be a hero. Like you're putting not only your life at risk, but the guy you're working with. And that's that, that can't be acceptable in your culture. Or else someone's going to paralyze you because they dropped you on their head because they forgot the spot. Yeah. Right, so it's sort of interesting to think about those risks and the different performance. Oh, that's a fair point. So, Chris, as we wrap up, um, people want to know more about the work that you all are doing. Where can they find out more, um, and what can they do to help? So, go to concussionfoundation.org. Track down all our social media there too, because we're, we're big pushers of that. Uh, two things you can do that are interesting. One is that if you are struggling. And I know one out of 100 people listening probably are. Post-concussion syndrome, CT concerns, we have a helpline. So find our helpline, concussionfighters.org slash helpline. Tell us your problems. We'll find you a good referral. We'll even find you someone who's been through it can tell you you're going to be okay. But we have a lot of people who want to do that. And then the other part is you want to be part of the solution. You know, our brain bank is really driving most of the discoveries we've made on this. Pledge your brain to our research. I don't care if you're young, you're old. Get involved in the game. Pledge your brain on the website, and ha- even if you're a control, we need more controls. We need every exposure. We need to figure this thing out. And we would welcome your contribution down the line. Or, you know, frankly, once you become part of our team, you become our surveillance network to find those important cases. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today uh, on the Cusp Show. Um, really informative, and keep doing the work that you're doing. I, you know, you know that I'm a huge fan. Um, and so many of our listeners are. But but thank you, because you're really doing uh, great public service uh, by getting, the, by getting the, the word out to everyone. So this has been The Cusp Show. Joe Favorito, Scott Rausner, our special guest today, uh, Dr. Chris Nowinski from the Concussion Legacy Foundation. We'll see you down the road.